All content published by Your Brain on Science is solely the opinions of the authors and does not reflect the opinions of any parties affiliated with them or any additional third parties. and welcome back to another episode of Your Brain on Science. I hope you guys have been doing well and I hope you're ready because today we're going to hop right back into our psychedelics and sports series, my absolute favorite series so far. And today's episode is going to be really exciting because you'll hear a conversation with me and former NHL player Riley Cote. Uh, So let me tell you a little bit about Riley. Riley was an athlete with the NHL for four seasons with the Philadelphia Flyers. So this is for all of my East Coasters, my Flyers fans. This is for you. (laughs) Um, After having retired from the NHL, he has been very, very active in the mindfulness and the wellness scene. Um, Riley is a co-founder of Athletes for Care, which is a nonprofit organization where athletes and former athletes can come for support, guidance, and opportunities. Um, This organization also advocates for additional research, resources, education, so on and so forth in issues facing current and former athletes. So a really, really cool organization with a very great cause. Um, Riley Cote is also an advisor with Weight Networks, which is a wellness network. Um, And I have to say that this is one of the coolest conversations that I've had yet. So let's get right into it. So hello and welcome, Riley, to Your Brain on Science. It's such a pleasure to have you here with us today. Thanks so much for being here. Of course. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So um, why don't we start by orienting our audience a little bit? Tell us a little bit about your journey to hockey, Uh, right? You've been an athlete your whole life. Um, Tell us a little bit about your journey to professional sports and then a little bit about how that world was for you. And I know while you were, you know, playing for the Flyers, you were an enforcer. And for the listeners, that is like the designated tough guy, like literally the guy that's like designated to getting into fights and sort of keeping the game very tough and physical, which I don't think you like see very much nowadays in hockey. So I think it's a little bit different uh, now. Um, So why don't you tell us a little bit about getting to hockey and then how that was there for you? Sure. Yeah. So I uh, grew up in Canada, Winnipeg, Manitoba, and like most Canadian kids, you play hockey, right? And you play street hockey, pond hockey, and, you know, some sort of organized youth hockey. And I was, you know, one of those kids. I uh, loved it. It was kind of in, in my DNA. Parents had season tickets to the Winnipeg Jets. So as long as I can remember, I had the, the childhood dream of playing in the NHL. So that was ingrained in a very early age. And I had a little bit of an unorthodox uh, approach to, to finding my way to the NHL. You know, as you mentioned, you know, I, I played four years of junior hockey, moved away from home when I was 16, played in uh, Western Canada in the Western Hockey League, Prince Albert, Saskatchewan, and I was never drafted. And when I turned 20, I turned pro and I decided to take on, you know, again, an un- unorthodox uh, approach to, to finding my way to the NHL, which was fighting. And uh, my my approach to the game was now forgetting about scoring goals and it was about fighting the biggest guy and the guy with the most penalty minutes and establishing some sort of street credit some sort of respect and honor in it and uh, that's kind of what i did it started in the central hockey league east coast hockey league american hockey league and then worked my way up to the nhl and 
was just fortunate enough to, to live out my childhood dream of playing in the NHL. However, it wasn't exactly how I envisioned it. So it was, uh, it was certainly an experience and I'm grateful for it all. Yeah. Yeah. That's exciting. So what was that like mindset? Like, so was there a mindset shift, right? Like you're playing hockey and your goal is to, I don't know, to score goals or defend. Right. And now you have to shift to, well, I have this role to fulfill. What was that like on your, what was that mindset like? And also what was that like for you psychologically, mentally, and even like, obviously physically, like a really tough physical role that you had to fulfill? Yeah, it was, uh, it, it, it was it was certainly a different mindset, right? I mean, you went from you know playing hockey, which was around scoring goals and and playing more of a skilled role, to now you're 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 getting ready to fight. Like you're worrying about the next game, the next fight, and the next fight, and the next fight. So, uh, as you alluded to, it has a you know an interesting psychological impact on the mind, where you're kind of in this middle of uh, the fight or fight or flight response. You, you, you know, that there's a fight that's going to happen. You're not sure when is when it's going to happen, but you can't, you can't bail out. You know, you can't just like, you know, not play or not dress and not, you know, not, not just avoid the fight completely. So you're kind of in this, this chronic state of anxiety. So it has an emotional impact for sure. The, the, you know, the physical part, I, I almost got so used to dealing with, it was just like, it was just like, just general wear and tear of icing down your hands or icing your face, you know, shoulder, whatever, shoulders, whatever is kind of impacted throughout the fight and, and the game itself. It was just kind of part of the game, obviously, but the emotional toll it took was something that I never really understood until I it was in it and in it for some period of time. Cause you know, year one, it was like a challenge. It was like, okay, you're going to fight, you know, 30, 35 times a year, you're going to fight the tough guys and you're going to take on this role. And, uh, there was an element of again the challenge. It was kind of like something I accepted, and then as I you know went went on and moved up the different leagues, it was like okay, I'm fighting again. You know, fighting you know again and again, and I had to mentally prepare to fight another season. And eventually, it just, just it really just took its toll. You know, it was it was it was after my second year of playing in the NHL was really what I when I noticed how much of an impact it took on my mental health it was again this roller coaster of jacking yourself up to fight whether you fought or not you still prepared to fight so there was like this you know this high there was this this, this energy adrenaline rush and and then you had to you know unwind and you had to you know calm the nervous system down and try and sleep and then then the, then the cycle continued right it was worrying about the next game next fight and it just took its toll emotionally and spiritually for sure yeah is this something that, I don't know, like the coaching staff told you about? Is this something you were coached on? Like, you know, there's going to be obviously this like sports in general, especially professional sports involve a mindset, right? Like you have to be some level of, I don't know, I don't know what the word is, but like ready to take on that adrenaline or like an adrenaline junkie, right? Like you mentioned this chronic stress aspect to it is, is always going to be present. Like, is that something that you were expecting or is that something that sort of creeped up on you as you kind of mentioned, alluded to? Yeah, you know what, I, I didn't really know what I was getting myself into until I did. Um, in the four years of junior hockey that I mentioned earlier, I had been in 20 fights. And that's really not significant in, in the grand scheme of fighting, especially in that era. Yeah. You know, especially when I took on the role, I started fighting 30, 35 times a year in one hockey season. So you can imagine the difference. Um, so a lot of those fights were kind of like just spontaneous, like yeah, the other word is an adrenaline rush associated with it, but it was like a spontaneous thing where it wasn't my role. Like, it wasn't like, 
well, I wasn't getting paid in junior, but I wasn't like dependent on to be that guy. It wasn't until I turned pro and accepted that role, which was my choice. Like no one forced me to do it. No one put a gun to my head and said, you're doing this. No coach even asked me to do it. It was just something that I just, you know, I, I recognized I had to do to give myself an honest chance. But when I adopted that role, then I, I quickly started to understand this this mindset, right? It was not it was something I had to prepare for every game. It wasn't like I could just, you know, pick and choose when I wanted to show up and when I wanted to be a tough guy, right? It was it was something that I signed up for from the start of the season. So even during practice, not that I was fighting, but I was an energy guy, I was a role player. I had to, you know, bring the positive attitude, I had to bring the energy, you know. What I mean, that that was my role. They expected that from me. And they also expected me to show up during the game, right? Whether I was fighting or not, like actually showing up and being vocal, getting in guys' faces, like flexing, you know, it was like puffing the chest out and all that stuff. So they expected that from me based on like, if you're going to play, you're going to be in the lineup and actually dress and wear a uniform tonight. Like we expect that from you. So as long as I was doing that, you know, I kept, I kept the flies away. I didn't hear from the coaches. They just, you know, assumed and expected me to show up and, and do that. On an, on, a, on an everyday basis, which I did. And I think that was one of the things that kind of earned my stripes was that I was consistent in that regard where I showed up every night, you know, I was a gamer. I was, win, lose or draw, I would show up every night and then I would at least attempt to fight or at least show that fearlessness and, and, and that that gamership that I was gonna be ready to fight and, and be willing to. So they knew what they were gonna get out of me. And I think that's, you know, kind of one of the, you know, the, the, the big things that helped me move up the ladder and find my way was the coaches knew what they were gonna get out of me. It was a consistency thing. And they, they knew that I was showing up and they knew what I was gonna bring every night. So um, that just came with time is like, okay, well, I was kind of an all in type of guy always. Like, you know, if I'm gonna to decide to do something, I'm all in. So yeah. I decided to take on the role of the enforcer. I was all in and, and it's not something you can just kind of half ass right i mean it's like you're going in against guys way bigger than yourself like i'm six one you know now 185 pounds when i played about 215 pounds but i was still in you know the average size category i was fighting guys 250 260 pounds six foot five six foot six so there's no nights off like there's no way you could just like you know tiptoe around and just kind of like casually enter a hockey game because gets your head knocked off you know so a different mindset for sure and i had to quickly learn that mindset uh, because as i just mentioned like you're just you wouldn't last right yeah and it's kind of that like no excuses attitude right that like gets you through every game or gets you through every day and and that's you know you mentioned it it's expected of you once you reach a certain level it isn't like you know like oh like i don't this is hurting or i don't feel good no it's kind of a no excuses thing you show up and you do your job and that's sort of what it is so now juxtaposing your life, right? Like this really tough guy, like big ego persona that you've had to take on, that was your professional life to now where you've come to this place of mindfulness, right? You've come to this different understanding of yourself and, and yourself psychologically, your body. Um, and you know, as an athlete, you're taught your whole life that the use of drugs, obviously other than like drugs like alcohol and all the opiates or the anti-inflammatories that you're prescribed, the use of drugs is highly discouraged and stigmatized, right? There's a lot of misinformation about it. And also in professional leagues, there's like active consequences, right? With drug testing and you can't test positive for anything or so on and so forth. So how did you get started with plant medicines and psychedelics in, in particular? Like how did you start incorporating that into your athletic space? Was it, you know, in your athletic space was that, or is that something really that came after? 
you. you know, I, I guess you, you could say I've always been a little bit of an outlaw, you know, again, like looking back on my career, it was, it wasn't very, you know, an orthodox way of making it. Non-traditional, it was, yeah. Yeah. Non-traditional, unconventional. Um, but I, but I also was introduced to the drug culture at a young age, uh, growing up in the middle of Canada, the cannabis culture was, uh, you know, was, was around me. I was in it. Um, you know, psilocybin mushrooms were around, uh, you know, 15 years old, 16 years old when I was first introduced. Um, however, I, it wasn't introduced in a very mindful manner. It wasn't, you know, around ceremonial use or the, you know, the, the sacredness of these plants. It was very, you know, recreational in that world, just of traditional drug culture of, you know, most kids didn't have the luxury of having a parent or some sort of authority figure teaching them the truth. Right. It was always, um, a dark cloud around it. It was always misunderstood. It was always stigmatized. It was obviously a war on the war on drugs was, you know, really, really, um, st still in its prime then. Right. I mean, it was, there was nobody really speaking publicly about this when I, you know, going back to when I was 15, 16. So I had an introduction to drugs, uh, you know, mainly those two uh, that were a big part of my life but again in more just misunderstood context a lot of alcohol still around them um you know festivals parties all that good stuff so yeah. i had but i did have a connection with them and there was something there was something that i identified later in my life that to make sense of why i felt the way i did and why i, I had certain belief systems around certain things that specifically, uh, you know, psilocybin mushrooms probably helped, um, you know, break down, you know, a few different programs around certain things where when I retired in 2010, I was 28 years old, another year of my contract, I had two surgeries at the end of the year, one of my nose, one of my finger, and I and I made a commitment to just using cannabis as pain management, anti-inflammatory um uh, medicine because i at that time i started to make sense of my experience with plant medicine and the science to support the way i was feeling and how it was helping me therapeutically and medicinally starting with cannabis and uh, so i used just cannabis instead of the pills um and had you know tremendous success with that and then started to understand some of these other compounds within the cannabis plant, CBD specifically, um, CBG, some of these other minor cannabinoids around, you know, the neurogenesis and neuroprotectant properties. So I was like, well, you know, I've been over 200 hockey fights, had my face punched in several times. So it might be wise to start using cannabis in a, you know, in a non-traditional sense and start using this a little bit more intentionally and therapeutically for, you know, brain health. You know, I was, you know, talking about, you know, healing the brain specifically. And then I kind of transitioned that thinking around psilocybin as I was reading more around the cannabis plant and its industrial applications, its medicinal applications, naturally, I, I, you know, having a connection to psilocybin mushrooms that I started researching and reading about the neuroregeneration properties of, of psilocybin and understanding its impact on, you know, neuroregeneration and all this stuff, all this, you know, beautiful stuff that I was kind of in. That made a ton of sense to me. I mean, I just made the connections based on experience and, and and the limited science that was around at that time, but nonetheless, started to use um, psilocybin around treating my my brain injuries. You know, it's the stuff that I you know caused. You know, I was an accountable guy. I got myself into this mess, and I was going to get myself out of this mess. So, I had some funky things going on in my last year. Again, it was you know between actual brain damage, if you want to call it that, you know, TBI related concussion related stuff, um, substance abuse issues, um, you know, alcohol being you know, probably the number one destructive drug and then getting into the pills. 
and just the lack of fulfillment, you know, talk about all this stuff we've already discussed around the emotional ups and downs of fighting and this impact on mental health. There was a lot of funkiness going on and I couldn't really decipher, you know, I couldn't really distinguish the overlap. It was this concussion. Is this depression? Is this, you know, a substance abuse? Is it all of it, you know, kind of lumped together? And um, I, I think that psilocybin kind of helped make sense of a lot of this, you know, as far as, you know, identity crisis that I was going through because, you know, transitioning from a hockey player or hockey fighter, more specifically, very, very egocentric and, you know, identifying with such a distinguished role to, you know, understanding myself a little bit more in the context of, you know, spiritual being. Um, but it helped me kind of, make sense of a lot as well as whatever it was doing neurologically to the brain, um, you know, helping heal of the brain. But I think way beyond the healing of the brain, which I always talk about is, is the emotional and the spiritual components to these medicines, because I think, you know, yes, TBI is a little bit different than traditional mental health around anxiety and depression, but there's trauma there. And I think we, again, we're, we're spiritual beings. And I think it unpacks and helps heal on, on a deeper level than traditional medicines, because I think the Western world and Western medicine specifically is, has almost um, separated the physical uh, from the emotional and the spiritual. But, you know, as we know in this space, it's, it's way beyond the physical that, I mean, to me, a lot of these mental health issues we're talking about, I say outside of TBI, because I know that's a little bit, a little bit in its own bucket um, are probably more spiritual and emotional issues that we have. You know, I think we've are become spiritually bankrupt and we don't have a pulse on our emotions. We don't know how to express. We bury trauma and, and we just suppress it and we never express it, you know, at least in a positive fashion. So it comes out as in violence and it comes out in, uh, you know, just the anger and, and rage and just the resentment and all these, you know, these really negative, low vibrational um, emotions. And, um, you know, I've just learned that there's so many positive ways um, to heal. And, you know, all these modalities are kind of integrated together in a sound, right? Music can either be very healing or it could be really destructive, you know, it depends on the sound and depends on the words, right? Just starting with thought, the way we think and, and the way we speak and use language and communicate. There's all these things that kind of do have an impact on mental health and brain health, but it's, but it's complicated. I mean, it's, it, there's a lot of things that go into it. As we know, it's not just like, Oh yeah, I'm going to eat mushrooms one time and I'm going to be healed. Or I'm going to use cannabis one time or two times, you know, and it, it's, it's integrative and it's, and, but beyond that, what I will say is the biggest thing is, is, is understanding that, like we are the medicine, right? It's like we have to learn how to lean on our own spine. We have to learn how to be empowered and take this into our own hands because God knows, you know, no, no doctor, no, no, no one's going to come in and save us, right? It's, it's like we have to save ourselves and these, these sacred plant medicines have a role in helping us realize, you know, the situation we're in and help us make sense of it. But at the end of the day, we have to take action. We have to create practices and disciplines within our life that promote life and promote, you know, um, you know, positivity and high vibrational um, thinking and being and that's, you know, energies of, of love and energies of giving and gratitude and just, you know, that, that high vibe thinking that I think we've lost because we get swallowed up in fear, fear based thinking and, and all that stuff. So it all it does have an impact on mental health and brain health. So 
I know it's a little bit long-winded answer there, but there's a lot there. And I think, you know, having a practice to fall back on, I mean, I'm, I'm a yogi, I teach and, 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 and actually practice uh, Hatha yoga, um, but meditation and, and, and physical movement, the physical practice of yoga, asana practice. I think these are like, not that it has to be yoga, but having some sort of foundational practice to fall back on um, that helps move energy, helps connect uh, the person with to, to breath and, and, you know, making them more meditative. I think these are all important because I just think we've lost sight of, uh, of being human, you know, being present. We've lost that, like being present. If we're, if we're not being present, we're either in a state of anxiety, or depression, you know, we're worrying about the future, we're worrying about the past. And, and then we're usually in these lower vibrational states versus if we're in, in the moment and in, in, in that flow state, we're generally in, in, in higher and higher vibrational frequencies. You know, we're more in the, we're more in, in, in that energy of love or gratitude because we're appreciating the moment we're in the moment and we're recognizing it and there's awareness around it. So, um, a lot, a lot there I know, but, um, it's, it's all integrated for sure. Yeah. A hundred percent. And you know, there's something that you said that I think is really, really important. So with psychedelics, a lot of people, you know, we're moving towards a medicalization for, you know, legalization purposes. And that's great because a part of it is necessary, right? In order for it to become more acceptable in society and for us to understand the effects it's having the brain. Yes. But there is this really intense spiritual, religious, and like cultural context with psychedelics that a lot of people seem to forget. And that's where that integrative and I think holistic use of psychedelics sort of comes in. And it's so, so important, especially in our society. So I'm Pakistani. And so I have um, this view of this Western society, right? Like I've grown up here in the US, but I also understand, you know, like other societies and, and everyone is looking for this like quick fix, right? This one magic thing that's going to save them or this, I'm depressed and I think that this is going to help me. But really it is, you need to take into account everything. And that's a really big like conversation in the psychedelics fields, right? Is do we just look at these drugs as purely like medical, right? Do we synthesize these in a lab and, and run these clinical trials and this is what it is? Or, right, like we need to understand that these drugs hold immense power and excuse me, in very, you know, different domains. And I think it's such an important aspect that people forget, but everything that you mentioned is so, so, you know, so highly relevant and you can get this in, I think, different ways. And it depends on your intention. So a lot of people, I know we've had some episodes um, in the past looking at just the science of microdosing, but microdosing is really impactful for some people, right? Microdosing versus macrodosing. So what do you, do you think that those two maybe aspects have, have brought, this healing for you? Do you think one versus the other has been more impactful? Tell me a little bit about um, like the intentionality behind your use of these drugs and how. Yeah, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm glad you brought up the, the spiritual component and I'll, I'll just, just, you know, kind of riff on that before moving yeah. on. Like, I, I really think that the psychedelics movement is challenging the current medical paradigm for that reason, right? I mean, the, the medical paradigm doesn't acknowledge spirituality or even in the emotional body in healing, right? It's kind of like, we're just going to mask this symptom with this chemical and we're going to shut that down. And, you know, I mean, there's some biochemistry and you know, all that stuff that's going on, but I've never seen a pharmaceutical drug address or, or, or even, you know, make mention or acknowledge uh, a, a spiritual component, right? And I think you know this is this is interesting because it's challenging 
the system in a big way, right? I mean, you look at these sacred plant medicines, they're, they're conscious forming, they, they, they create consciousness and awareness, right? I mean, it's like God knows the system doesn't want people too overly aware and conscious. So yeah. I think this is really going to challenge the paradigm for sure, because as we know, I say most industries, all industries for that matter, including the church, have been spiritually booby trapped, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's it's just, it just it's just everywhere. You know, look at the water supply. We, you know, we put fluoride in the water and we calcify the pineal gland. We denature food and we you know we take the you know the essence out of food and we you know we, the information and the nutrients out of food and we give you you know factory farm depleted nutrient deficient foods and you go down the list. You know, the pharmaceutical play. So I think there's going to be, you know, an interesting, um, we're, we're, we're coming to an interesting point of, 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 of say, consciousness uh, with psychedelics. But yes, there's, you know, then you got the pharmaceutical companies are coming in and they want to, you know, patent and, and you know, rearrange the molecules. And, and you know, it's all for corporate aspect of this is we're doing a whole episode on that. The whole corporate aspect of this, you know, is, is an entirely different conversation even, but I want to mention something about that the whole spiritual thing. So a lot of the clinical trials now um, have actually found, so they do a lot of mystical experiences, questionnaires, like during while individuals or patients are coming in and, and taking these psychedelics. And we're finding that individuals that have more intense, um, like mystical experiences, more maybe spiritual, more religious and whatever that might mean for them, right? The more intense their experience is in that sense, the more benefit that they're seeing, right? There seems to be some correlation between that. So I think clinical trials are sort of working towards incorporating that, but not nearly, I think, this is, I guess, a personal opinion, but like not nearly as much as maybe we should, but that was just like, yeah, and I, and I I agree, you know, I've, I've heard comments from people that are in the, you know, the drug development pharma play and they're, they're making comments like the FDA don't want to hear about spirituality, you know what I mean? And and these comments that are, you know, probably true unfortunately they're like really disturbing at the same time like the fact that you don't want to acknowledge spirituality because you're worrying about a government agency you know not approving your drug is is kind of missing the point of what these medicines are these this is spiritual medicine that's the that's that's the sacredness in it right and uh there's this battle now again the biotech and pharma controlling molecules and I mean, cannabis and psilocybin, ayahuasca and all these, you know, these, these um, naturally occurring psychedelics aren't illegal because they're bad for you. I mean, it's, 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 it's the opposite, right? I mean, it, it's such powerful medicine and it works so well. And especially psilocybin mushrooms, they, you know, they grow in every continent of the world and are, are, are almost dirt cheap, they're dirt cheap to, to produce. Um, you know, it, it just it affects the model, right? It, it interferes with the model of a profit-driven, um, you, know, uh, you know. I'm the only one that can give access healthcare. to this, right? Like, if right, I'm you got to go through the gatekeeper, exactly. but, but but God or Mother Nature or you know Supreme Soul or, or you know the Great Spirit isn't good enough, right? It's like it's well, me. Like I those have naturally occurring compounds aren't good enough, but you got to come through me. Yeah. Um, so that's where there's a huge disconnect, and people are realizing that the, the system is heavily flawed through politics and. Um, and, and I think the psychedelics specifically are really challenging that because it's way beyond the physical. It's yeah. it, you can't ignore the spiritual nature of this, and I think that's exactly what mankind. They say the industrialized world, the Western world, is lost is their their spiritual connection to source, to self, uh, to people. You know, to their to their to their diet, to their food. Right? I mean, it's like the Native Americans. I mean, you you know you grew up here, but you know you have um you know pakistani roots and like you know these eastern cultures 
it's almost like westerns almost forgot you know like we almost forgot our culture so long yeah like yeah and and i so i think like this is it's a it's it's a crazy and scary time to be alive right but it's also a beautiful time if you're actually aware of what's happening and and the potential that could be because i feel like as a species as a society we haven't even like scratched the surface of our potential because it's been suppressed right for so long we've been we've been kept small you know part of it is our own problem and our own fault because we've sub- subscribed to a lot of this spiritual booby trapping but i mean part of it's a system you know that's it's keeping people down but now you know there there's this movement around yes you know truly medical yes i understand um but it, to me it's way more exciting than that because it's it's about optimizing the the, the spiritual condition of of mankind it's improving our creative nature we could we could be so much better than we are right i mean as individuals and as a collective but it starts with opening the heart up right i mean you don't need psychedelics to open the heart up you can do that through yoga you can do that through meditation all this other stuff but i mean the 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 point that we're in right now i don't see anything else facilitating and accelerating um spiritual growth any faster than 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 psychedelics right and, and just it's, it's an amazing catalyst it's not going to do the work for you You still got to do the work but to your, to what you said earlier like it's people are having these profound experiences these really mystical experiences it's breaking down these programs and then all of a sudden it's like wow it's like i got so much work to do and then the people that actually engage in the work are the ones that probably have the the most success but um certainly certainly challenging the current paradigm which is a beautiful thing because yeah. um, as we know, it's it's been flawed and and, and it's, it's almost it, it's it's so corrupt. Yeah. Um, so anything that can help uh, change that and reform that in a positive way, I'm 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 for. Uh, yeah. But there's still there's still challenges within the space as we as we've alluded to, right? There's a lot of money being thrown at this now, the pharmaceutical, the patents, um, you know. So we'll see where it goes. As long as as long as there's room for both to play. um you know uh but we can't uh we we can't suppress the natural like it's been forever you know the natural is bad but you got to come through me i I don't agree with that i think there's a better way for sure yeah and there's a lot of conversations you know around around the corporatization of the psychedelics field and it's yeah that's a whole that's a whole big thing in, in and of itself but you mentioned something that i think is so important to bring up is psychedelics are work, right? We have a lot of people that come into these trials or people that, you know, you'll meet, they might take psychedelics, they might microdose, and they'll be like, this is not doing anything for me. Because again, it goes back to people expecting like a magic pill, a magic change, right? And a big part of this is, you know, in clinical trials, the integration that happens afterwards, or if you're taking these by yourself, right, you know, in an informed context, it's the integration that happens afterwards. So it's this whole model that people need to sort of understand and, and come to know and, and work with. So I have, I have a question for you. So if psychedelics, you know, in a different world, completely in a utopia, if psychedelics, if cannabis was something that was taught to you and available to you as an athlete, First of all, do you think that you would have turned to, you know, psychedelics to help your mental health, your mindset with all, with everything that goes in with being a professional athlete day in and day out? And do you feel like that could have helped you be a better player, a better person, you know, like overall improve your game on the ice? Yeah, I, I truly believe so. I think that I would have taken a, a different path had it been taught in the, in the context of you know, um, you know, performance, you know, you know, improve performance, improve flow states, um, 
just yeah just overall general well-being you know i think i think for sure i mean the creativity you know hockey is a creative sport so you know, we're seeing now you got hockey players using microdosing you know microdoses before games and it's helping them find flow state a little bit easier you know it's a more creative a little bit more um again being more reactive instead of being in the mind and think overthinking right so it's like you're going back to the yoga and it's going back to the you know the, what the psychedelics teach is like being more in the moment versus overthinking you see this in, in sports a lot guys worst enemies themselves right they, they're in their own mind and they're they can't get out of it um so yes i mean I, I would like to think that i could have been a better hockey player um more in the moment probably a little wiser wiser decision maybe less drinking less partying all that stuff that you know had certainly took its toll on me i'm not sure i could have done the job i did um as a fighter yeah. as well being that in tune with myself I, I probably would have chosen a different path maybe i would have been a better more skilled guy who knows maybe not skilled enough to ever find my way i'm not sure but i do know it improves performance it does improve flow state um and just and just kind of letting things slide off a little bit easier you're not so in your head and you're not bothered by mistakes and as much and i think you can find that creative flow a little bit easier so i do think you know i, I you know shoulda woulda coulda you know going back in time to say to say that it's hard to say because again i wouldn't have probably chosen this path of you know destruction <laughs> had i been a little bit more aware um but you're seeing it with current athletes now it's it's certainly helping improve their their performance um you know on, on a daily on a daily basis and probably creating a little more awareness and consciousness around taking care of their bodies a little bit more, you know, self-preservation and be able to sustain and lengthen their, their careers to, to, you know, to, to play longer, to make more money and have a, a lengthier and more successful career. So it's happening. It's happening in real time. I mean, hockey's not the only sport guys are microdosing in, right? I mean, it's, you, know, you look at football, baseball, golf, I mean, it's happening. UFC, UFC is probably beyond microdosing. I've I've learned that some of these guys are taking upwards to a gram, gram and a half before fighting. Some of them, uh, based uh, okay. on, again, again, getting into the feeling body, getting into the heart, and and not getting out of the mind. You're you're going on instinct. You're being more reactive instead of you know trying to think your way through it. So, um, interesting time again in the in the world of performance. You know, like Silicon Valley coders, and you know I, I know some. So some dentists and dental surgeons that are, you know, microdosing before surgery, because it does, it helps you bring, it brings you back to that, the present moment with the only time that exists. The only thing that exists is the present moment. So that's where flow is. That's where creativity like lands up uh, uh, really co being cultivated. And I think that the microdose, the microdosing specifically I'm talking about here now, it helps uh, people f find that, you know, the macrodosing is a completely different vehicle, you know, same exact mushroom, um, you know, different dose, but different outcome and different intention, right? I mean, you're, you're going to the macro doses, obviously, to dive deeper, to look inwards. Um, and there's a lot more work. You're not really doing a whole lot besides sitting with yourself and and making sense and processing uh, trauma and kind of removing blockages. Um, but nonetheless, I think both require a level of integration, obviously. I mean, you have to have some sort of discipline and have some sort of practice um, to lean on because that's where the power is at, right? I mean, to have all these uh, downloads and understand all these things in the moment and, and to go back into the world and not do anything with them seems like a little bit absurd, but I mean, a lot of people do that because they're hoping that someone's going to come in and do the work for them. But 
Yep. You know, being human isn't easy. You know, it's never been easy, and it always is always required work. And I think in in a in a world of convenience and, and say softness, I mean, culture has become so soft. Everything is convenient and almost handed to you on a silver platter. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to go and farm your own food or garden your own food. You can just you know hop on Grubhub and you know within ten minutes you can have you know pizza delivered. Yeah. Yeah. So there's so there's this ownership on like how to be human again, right? Again, we've lost our culture, we've lost our roots, and I think um, it's always been around a practice. You look at the old yogis and sages and shamans. It's like they they got to where they've gotten based on a ton of effort and you know and practice right it's, it's understanding the natural world and understanding the food understanding medicine understanding nature and understanding breath and you know meditation and the mind and like all this stuff it's like again we've abandoned all this stuff and it's just like quick fixes convenience um abandoning you know if food is medicine medicine is food and like these simple principles that humans have leaned on forever so we're kind of we're almost coming kind of com- coming full circle That's back cool. to our indigenous roots almost you know in some way shape or form yeah i think such an important like shift happening and then you know i want to touch on something that you said a little earlier so there's this change that we're seeing in sports and amongst athletes right and i think part of that also coincides with the fact that now there's maybe a little bit more of an emphasis also on, you know, the holistic well-being of an athlete rather than just the physical, right? Which is, I don't know, sometimes treated with opiates or whatever drug is the strongest that's going to help them get to the next game and get through the next game, right? Now, I think there's a little bit more of an emphasis on that mental health aspect of it that's so, so, so crucial, right? To an athlete's well-being, an athlete's entire game and how they play, their skill, whatever, Um, So I think that shift that's happening is so, so, so important. Um, And that's right during the game. And you mentioned this way earlier, but what about when you're done with, you know, your professional sports career? Now you've, your whole life, this has defined you and who you are. And now that's kind of taken away from you, right? Like now you have to discover who you are as a person and where you belong in the world and, and sort of what you can bring to the world. And I think psychedelics also might have a role there, right? Like as you, as you mentioned earlier. So you are on your mindfulness journey and you've been very outspoken and and have been advocating for, for all of this and plant medicines. Um, And you've been very, very active in the field and you have co-founded Athletes for Care. Um, do you want to sort of tell us a little bit about that and maybe your involvement also with Wake Networks? I think that'd be really exciting to hear about. Yeah, sure. So Athletes for Care started, she's uh, six, six, seven years ago, I guess. And it was really around cannabis. It was a bunch yeah. of athletes that kind of come together speaking publicly around their experience uh, with cannabis and how it helped them in the moment, dealing with pain management, um, anxiety, concussion related stuff, um, and, and, and as well as business, you know, opportunity and, and helping people. So it evolved in like, you know, panels of, of athletes with, uh, you know, a healthcare professional to help support the, the stories with science to legitimize it a little bit more. And then it evolved into kind of all things wellness, business, you know, um, and then eventually into psychedelics. Unfortunately, when, you know, COVID hit, it kind of it kind of screwed up a few things that were going on so we've been less active uh with that but nonetheless we've been able to help a bunch of guys um you know with with you know cannabis education help you know helping leagues reform their cannabis policies mm-hmm. you know the nfl not that we're going to take full credit of it but you know we've had guys actively helping you know bang the drum within the the uh the alumni uh organizations within within the uh 
players associations and, and kind of like, again, just bringing some awareness around how toxic some of these, these drugs are that they're giving guys and then no problem giving guys. And then all of a sudden, you know, cannabis and some of these minor cannabinoids are on the sidelines is like, you know, still deemed as taboo. So just, you know, just kind of reforming the mindset around cannabis, the stigma around cannabis through the lens of sports. So it's been, you know, I, I would say it's been very successful because, you see this in psychedelics. Aaron Rodgers comes out and speaks around his ayahuasca experience, and all of a sudden, you know, the the whole world's talking about it, right? It's like, oh wow, he had his best his best season of his career after his his ayahuasca experience. Like, oh well, well, he made more sense of himself. He you know he's more connected to himself, so he knows himself better, so he can perform better. Well, oh, that makes a shitload of sense, and it's not just about healing, but it, it is always about some bit of healing because you have to peel back the onion to get into the weeds and, and, and to make sense of it for you to actually come out and do something about it. But um, you can see the ripple that it has. If Tom Brady came out and talked about, you know, his mushroom experience or something like that, you, you God knows it would ripple across the planet. So you, there is a lot of power in storytelling. As we know, we've seen this in cannabis and that's what we're, you know, we're doing with athletes and athletes for care has been, you know, we've been doing that quite a bit. And then, in the last few years, you know, talking more about psychedelics. Uh, actually, April twenty second, uh, we're we're airing a, an E sixty documentary with ESPN that was filmed down in Jamaica with Wake, one of Wake's retreats, and I was kind of one of the catalysts to help bring it all together. You know, some members from Athletes for Care were there, um, but nonetheless, again, showing the world of psychedelics through the lens of sport. Um, you know, talking about traumatic brain injury, PTSD, you know, general anxiety and depression that goes into it, just everyday stuff that we all deal with as humans, uh, but through, again, athletic lens. So doing a lot of good stuff down in Jamaica, cultivating psilocybin mushrooms legally, doing retreats. We've exported, um, you know, mushrooms from the island into the U.S. Uh, several times through the DEA and doing some analytical research around the mushrooms here in the U.S. Um but yeah, just uh, it's it's interesting. I've been you know fortunate enough to hook up with these guys pre-COVID and uh, right when the company started, I'm an advisor, investor in the company, and do a lot of work, kind of bringing pieces to the mothership. But um, I'm also kind of when I go down there, I'm I'm, I'm get an opportunity to experience the medicine, right, and actually speak to it, and then sit on the other side where I'm holding space and helping you know on that side of it. But you never, you know, you never think that like, you know, there's an opportunity in this world like this, you know, to be on the forefront of, of, of standing for something much, much, much greater than yourself. You're talking about, you know, highly intelligent, conscious energy, but that has an, an amazing impact, an amazing ability to impact. I say, again, I always say spiritual wellness, because to me, this is way beyond mental wellness. I think the whole mental, mental health movement has been bastardized and sabotaged and hijacked through people that don't even acknowledge the spiritual so um to me that's that that's where my heart's at talking about consciousness and the spiritual nature of this because it helps you connect to something much much greater than yourself this, this you know source energy and becoming so grateful for what you have right and getting out of this egocentric bubble that we're living in so you know doing a lot of a lot of good work down in jamaica and, and and the idea is to take that model of what we're doing legally down there because of uh, of the laws and the regulations that allow it and, and then dropping it into different pockets around the world as they turn online you know with oregon we're, we're working on putting together a clinic there and and different uh, bvi is, is kind of similar to jamaica where it's legal and unregulated so we're doing a, a retreat there in, in May. Um, but yeah, just, just doing whatever we can, where we can legally, 
and just trying to collect data and it really we're wake is a very data-driven company so it's actually you know say more of a technology company um is the, i want to i don't say more than more than the mushrooms themselves because um you know mushrooms are are, are are the spine of the company but integrating the technology around the cultivation of the mushrooms as well as the you know the brain uh technology there's the data around just basic um, uh, data points around the, the body um, and, you know, trying to just make, make sense of what's actually happening because the Western world just needs to see it, right? They need to see it to believe it. They couldn't just believe it without seeing it because yeah. that would never happen. So we got to show the data. We got to show the brain scans. We got to show it, show it, show it. And then hopefully people can make sense of it a little bit more versus it just being this really mystical, spiritual thing that you can't quantify. Um, a lot of it you can't quantify and you'll never be able to quantify and i think that's the beauty of it i think that's the real the, the, the essence of it um but yes you, the the science world the medical world needs some sort of data points to help you know move legislatures along and you know help move government along to understand this a little bit more yeah yeah that's amazing. And I am more than excited to see what else you have in store for us in the future. But I think that sort of brings us to our time. So I'd like to thank you so much for having this conversation with me here today. And I'm sure hopefully we can talk more about this in the future, but it's been really, really amazing. Um, and everyone listening um, at home or in their cars, wherever you're listening to us, uh, please subscribe and reach out. Tell us what you liked about this episode. And thanks so much. And we'll catch you on the flip side. Bye, guys. Thank you.